Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Anthology of Horror. I am your host and your narrator, Spring-Heeled Jack. Today we're going to be talking about something that I've been wanting to do for quite some time. Something that is of interest to a lot of people and still basking in the success of the... The overwhelming success, I might add, of the last Jersey Devil episode. I'm going to stick to cryptids on this one. We are going to be talking about werewolves. That's right. Werewolves. Half human, all beast, or all human, all beast, depending on how you look at it. Beasts of legend. We're going to talk about their origins. We're going to talk about their alleged continued existence. But before we do that, I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning back in. Thank you all for making this quite a pleasant experience for me. And I strive to do the same for you by offering ad-free listening, with the exception of the fake ads from people that don't sponsor me that I choose to air sometimes when I'm short on material. And also, to all new listeners, if you or your children are sensitive or soft and you don't like hearing the words cunt or fuck-ass, or horse dick, or dwarf cock, I would advise that you turn this podcast off now. This is not safe for work. Please don't show this to your boss. Don't play it for your teachers. I am not a credible source. I'm credible enough, like your honest uncle or something, but I am not educated. If you're doing a school report, please, for fuck's sake, do not cite me. That being said, I do enough research that I am relatively credible, but I'm not a scholar. Please don't tell anybody that I am. This is my hobby, and you guys are enjoying it with me. So, I want to thank all of you for donating to the Patreon, tuning back in, telling your friends, spreading the word. I can see that you're doing all of that, and I appreciate you guys for doing that. Now that is enough tomfoolery right now. And without any further ado, let's take it away with the uh, advertisement from somebody that doesn't sponsor me. In this day and right age... Back. Business is governed by consolidation. Fill your gas tank, get a car wash. Go to a bar, see a concert. Get a coffee, see some boots. On another note, have you ever come back from a hunting trip with uh, <clears throat> a little bit more than you asked for? Well, my name is Bob, and I'm here to tell you about my business. Bob's Abortion Clinic and Taxidermy Services. Here at Bob's Abortion Clinic and Taxidermy Services, we live by our motto, no fetus will beat us. Pheasant, elk, bobcat, Siamese twins, we do them all. Mention this ad for a 10% discount, and remember, Bob's Abortion Clinic and Taxidermy Services. That way the bitch can keep the kid. Jesus. <laughs> Oof, that one might get me in trouble. Yikes. <laughs> Got a little fucking all flustered now. I lost my goddamn train of thought. Oh, Christ in heaven. Anyway, without any further ado, let's talk about the ancient origins or alleged origins of werewolves. <sighs> like all great things, it's alleged to have uh, been... It's not, fully, it's not fully invented by the Greeks as much as I'd like to say it was. I'm not going to lie to you. However, the werewolf is a staple of supernatural fiction, whether it's film, television, or literature. You might think that this snarling creature is the creation of medieval and early, simpler periods in time, and a result of superstitious, simple jackery, uh, and like the paranoia that seemed to grip most of Europe, fuck until today, surrounding magic and witchcraft. 
But in reality, the werewolf is a lot older than that. Interesting. I know. That's why I'm fucking talking about it. The earliest surviving examples of a man-to-wolf transformation, uh, it can be found in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is from around 2100 BC. Now, uh, if you're anything like me, uneducated and a fucking <laughs> member of the, the working class, uh, the, the Epic of Gilgamesh apparently is a very important thing. It's Gilgamesh is a semi-mythic king of Mesopotamia, and he, he's cited mainly in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was written from 2150 to 1400 BCE, which is before Christ or before Zero. Uh, the great Sumerian and Babylonian poetic work that predates Homer's writing, which is what we were agonizing over with the Iliad and Odyssey, and it predates him by 1,500 years, and it therefore stands as the oldest piece of epic world literature. To sum up, the motif of the quest for the meaning of life is first fully explored in Gilgamesh as the hero leaves his kingdom following the death of his best friend, something unpronounceable is his name, to find the mystical figure something unpronounceable, and gain eternal life. Gilgamesh's fear of death is actually a fear of meaningless, and although he fails to win immortality, the quest itself gives his life meaning, so it's not the destination, it's the journey. And this theme has been explored by writers and philosophers from antiquity up until present day. And a little bit more of this here synopsis. Gilgamesh's father is said to have been the priest king, unpronounceable, who is featured in two other Sumerian poems concerning his magical abilities which predate Gilgamesh. And his mother was the goddess something else. Holy mother, great queen, whatever the fuck. And Gilgamesh was a demigod who said to have lived an exceptionally long life, 126 years old. And he had superhuman strength until the day he died. <laughs> uh, Gilgamesh in Greek and associated closely with the figure of Dumuzi from the Sumerian poem The Descent of in something unpronounceable as well. He's widely accepted as a historical king of the Uruk region who re reigned in 26th century BCE. His influence allegedly was so profound that myths of his divine status grew around his deeds and finally culminated in tales found in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So it's a good old-fashioned fucking sidestep and bullshit make him up. Uh, later, Mesopotamian kings would invoke his name and associate his lineage with their own, kind of like every fat, greasy Greek seems to think that they're fucking related to Alexander the Great. Most famously, one of these these people that claimed to be related to him was Shulgi of Ur, uh, considered to be the greatest king of Ur. In case you were wondering, he was a third-period king in Mesopotamia. He claimed Lugalbanda and Ninsun as his parents, and Gilgamesh is his brother to elevate his reign in the eyes of his people. <sighs> so there is a Greek version of the text that was discovered in the ruins of the library of Asher Banipal, whatever the fuck, in 1849 by an archaeologist, or grave robber as I would more commonly call him, named Austin Henry Laird. His expedition was part of a mid-19th century initiative of European institutions and governments to fund Expeditions to Mesopotamia to find physical evidence or corroborate events described in the Bible. Sounds like grave robbing to me. What these explorers found instead, however, was that the Bible, previously thought to be the oldest book in the world uh, and comprised of original stories, actually drew upon much older Sumerian myths. Which is why I laugh in the face of everybody that says they're scared of the devil and not of the jinn. Mm, maybe I'll do a jinn episode if I'm feeling ballsy and it's light outside, but maybe not. Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh did likewise, as it's a compilation of tales, no doubt originally 
get passed down orally. Uh, it was finally written down 700 to 1,000 years later, I think, after the historical king's reign. And the author of the version that was found uh, it was the Babylonian writer Shin Leki something with a lot of N's and I's. And he was thought to be the world's first author known by name until the discovery of the works of Enhiduana, daughter of Sargon of Akkad. Man, are they, they, they sort of just making up places? And drew upon Sumerian sources to create his story and probably had a number of works uh, from the Gilgamesh saga to draw upon and create an epic around. Oh, my God. Ugh, Gilgamesh. Just trying to find the fucking werewolf lecture. All right. Essentially, the epic tale of Gilgamesh is that the great king became too proud and arrogant by the gods, so they decided to teach him a lesson by sending the wild man Enkidu to humble him. Enkidu and Gilgamesh are considered an even match by the people, but after a fierce, shirtless jello fight, Enkidu is bested. He freely accepts his defeat, and the two become friends and embark on adventures together. They kill Humbada, demon of the cedar forest, and this attracts the attention of Inanna, known by the Greek name of Ishtar in the story. Inanna tries to seduce Gilgamesh, but he says, Nay, Citing all the other men, she, men she's had as lovers who ended their lives poorly. Ooh, so she... That's interesting. Inanna is enraged and sends her brother-in-law, the Bull of Heaven, down to Earth to destroy Gilgamesh. And Kidu comes to his friend's aid and kills the bull, but in doing so, he has offended the gods and is condemned to death. When Kidu dies, Gilgamesh falls into a deep grief and recognizing his own mortality through death of his friend... Oof questions the meaning of life and the value of human accomplishment in the face of ultimate extinction. He cries, How can I rest? How can I be at peace? Despair is in my heart. What my brother is now, that shall be me when I am dead. Because I am afraid of death, I will go. Best, I can go to find Utanapamanashad, whom they call the far away, for he has entered the assembly of God. <sighs> Makes just about as much sense as the Bible to me. Casting away all of his old vanity and pride, Gilgamesh sets out on a quest to find the meaning of life, finally, some way, defeating death. He travels through the mountains over the ocean and finally locates this unpronounceable name motherfucker who offers him two chances at immortality, both of which he fucked up. First, he cannot remain awake for six days and six nights, and second, he fails to protect a magic plant. A snake eats the plant while Gilgamesh sleeps. Failing to have won immortality, he rose back home, or he is rowed back home by the ferryman, Urshanabi, and once there, writes down his story. And through his struggle to find the meaning of life, Gilgamesh defied death, and in doing so, becomes the first epic hero. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Alright, so historical evidence of Gilgamesh's existence is found in inscriptions crediting him with the building of great walls in Uruk, Today in Iraq, so I doubt many of you have gotten to see it unless you are veterans, which case, thank you for your service, which in the story are tablets upon where he first records his great deeds and his quest for the meaning of life. There are other references to him by known historical figures of the time, such as King Emmer Bagazi of Kish and, of course, the Sumerian king List, and legends grew and grew upon his reign. In present day, Gilgamesh is still spoken of and written about. German team of archaeologists have claimed to have discovered the tomb of Gilgamesh in April of 2003. 
archaeological expeditions conducted through modern technology involving magnetized or magnetization in and around the old riverbed of the Euphrates have revealed garden enclosures, specific buildings and structures described in the Epic of Gilgamesh, including the Great King's Tomb. According to legend, he was buried at the bottom of the Euphrates when the waters parted upon his death. <sighs> huh. Funny that he failed, and that was how famous he got. So let's see Gilgamesh and the Wolf part of that story, because I think I glossed over it. One sec. Excuse my typing. Okay. All right, so the Epic of Gilgamesh comes from the second millennium BC and is the oldest known of texts. It was originally written for ancient kings of Uruk, later known as Mesopotamia, and after some time, the story was translated into Greek, Akkadian. The epic is said to be simply a collection of ancient oral tales. So the important part that I've been getting at this whole time is that the epic of Gilgamesh tells the tale of Gilgamesh, a god-king and son of goddess and demigod, as we've been over. So in the story, Ishtar, the goddess of fertility, love, war, and sex, it was essentially Aphrodite, is supposedly in love with Gilgamesh, and so she flirts with him mercilessly. Gilgamesh, however, said, Bitch, be cool. And he rejects her advances because of how she treated her past fuck toys. One suitor in particular comes to mind, and that was a young shepherd that had fallen in love with the goddess. He left her bountiful offerings at a shrine on a mountainside, and at first, the arrogant Ishtar encouraged him. But eventually, she grew bored with his devotions and transformed him into a wolf. He was then torn to bits by his very own hounds that had been trained to attack the wolves. So you can see why Gilgamesh would turn her down. Sounds like you're a fucking prude, Gilgamesh. Live a little... <laughs> pussy. The story of the love-struck shepherd is the first written account of a man being transformed into a wolf. But can he be considered a werewolf? I'd say not, I'd say he's just a sissy. The Epic of Gilgamesh came out before anything else, but since there isn't technically a werewolf in it, many don't consider Gilgamesh the first werewolf tale. What do you think? I think it's not Greek, doesn't count. Suck it. And, back. So these stories of the transformed beast are usually mythological, although some have basis in local history, religions, and cults. I stroke my dick and just kind of roll my eyes at that theory, but... This one is 100% true, guaranteed, because it was written by the Greek uh, ever-honest Herodotus. <laughs> the ever-accurate Herodotus. <laughs> a, uh, he described a tribe that was a nomadic tribe of magic men who changed into wolves changed into wolves for several days of the year, and they were from a land named Scythia, which is a land that is now part of Russia. Using pelts for warmth is not outside the realm of possibility of the inhabitants of such a harsh climate because it's fucking cold. This is likely the reason that Herodotus described their practice as transformation, because they put on fucking clothing when the strange, hairy man showed up. The werewolf myth became... <laughs> or not, and that's a very, very different set of issues. The werewolf myth became integrated with the local history of Arcadia, a region of Greece. Here, Zeus was worshipped as Lycian Zeus, a.k.a. Wolf Zeus. In 380 BC, Greek philosopher Plato told a story in the Republic about the protector-turned-tyrant of the shrine of Lycian Zeus. In this short passage, the character Socrates remarks, 
The story goes that he who tastes of the one bit of human entrails minced up with those of the other victims and inevitably transformed into a wolf. Literally, <coughs> excuse me, literary evidence suggests cult members mixed human flesh into their ritual sacrifice to Zeus. Both Pliny the Elder and Pausanias discuss the participation of a young athlete named Demarcus in the Akkadian sacrifice of an adolescent boy. When Demarcus was compelled to taste the entrails of the young boy, he was, in fact, transformed into a wolf for nine years. Recent archaeological evidence suggests that human sacrifice may have been practiced at the site. <laughs> so, the most interesting aspect of Plato's passage concerns the protector-turned-tyrant, also known as the mythical king, Lyceon. Lycaon. Expanded further in Latin text, most noticeably Hyginus's Fabulae and Ovid's Metamorphosis, Lycan's story contains all the elephants, or not the elephants, excuse me, all the elements of a modern werewolf story, which that's the immortal and immoral behavior, murder, and cannibalism. So essentially what happened is was the sons of Lycan sacrificed their youngest brother to prove to Zeus that he was weak. They served the corpse as a pseudo-feast and an attempting, as an attempt to trick the god into eating it. A furious Zeus slayed the sons with a lightning bolt and transformed their father into a wolf. In Ovid's version, Lycaon murdered and mutilated and uh, a protected hostage of Zeus but suffered the same consequences. Ovid's passage is one of the only ancient sources that goes into great detail on the act of transformation. His description of the metamorphosis uses haunting language that creates a correlation between Lycan's behavior and his physical manipulation of the body, his own. He tried to speak, but his voice broke too into an echoing hallow. His ravening soul infected his jaws. His murderous longings were turned on his cattle and sheep till he was still possessed by bloodlust. His garments were changed to a shaggy coat, and his arms into legs. But now transformed into a wolf, he was. So Lycan is the original story that formed the origin of the modern werewolf, as physical manipulation of his body hinges on his prior immoral behavior. It is this that has contributed to the establishment of a monstrous werewolf trope of modern fiction. Lycan's character defends, or his character defects are physically grafted to his body, and manipulating his human form until he becomes that which his behavior suggests, and perhaps more importantly, Lycan becomes the idea that to transfer into a werewolf, he must first be a monster. Huh. That was a punishment. The idea that there was a link between biology, i.e. appearance, and immoral behavior developed fully in the late 20th century. However, minority groups, when more often, or however, minority groups were more often the target of these fucking smear campaigns, more so than mythical kings, law enforcement, scientists, and medical community joined forces to find cures for socially driven behavior such as criminality, violence, and even uh, homosexuality. Since medicine was used as a vehicle through which bigotry and fear could be maintained, as showed by the treatment of the HIV-affected men throughout the 1980s, they were trying to lasso it down for this, too. Population control. However... Werewolf stories show that the idea has ancient origins, and for as long as authors have been changing bad men into wolves, we have been looking for the biological link between man and actions. Ah, 
And now a brief message from somebody that doesn't sponsor me. Paying in for the Vice City Mamas and proud proprietor of BJ's Used Autos. Cars from all over America come to find a new home in Florida, just like you. I moved here after the draft. Football, uh, not Vietnam, even though they do have a lot in common. I noticed there was one thing missing from this great town, a celebrity-endorsed used car shop. That's why I founded BJ's Used Autos. Every one of these beauties is freshly painted. They look brand new. We have new models coming in every morning, usually around 2 a.m., we can get you anything. And if you see a car of your dreams, tell us. We can acquire it for you. I've taken the skills I've learned as a pro football player to the used car business. Smash, grab, and run like hell. BJ's Used Autos. I'm tackling low prices with hot cars. <laughs> and I'm back. So what do we know so far? We know that there's some really fucking old stories from places that may or may not have come, come in contact with each other. Uh, for a few more years, but what else do we have to put the werewolf legend into the modern era? So we're, we're getting into the more recent history of the werewolf legend. So we know already werewolves are known as lycanthropes, and they are sh legendary shape-shifting humans. As the name suggests, the shape that these creatures take on is that of the wolf, and the history of the werewolf legend has sprung up independently or spread to virtually every area of the earth from cultures that have no reason to have interacted with each other. That's something that always frightens me. It's also one of the oldest legends of human monsters in recorded history. Where the legend originated can only be guessed by what humans have taken care of to record. The name itself probably definitely comes from Greece. Uh, there are records of trials of confessed or accused werewolves, but there's also trials of accused and confessed witches. In fact, they were hunted, questioned, and executed in much the same way that the witches were as well, because often witches were accused of also being werewolves or uh, werewolf wolf commerce or some shit. These so-called werewolf trials give us a historical glimpse at the rampant human belief in werewolves. Some of the accused were arrested because villagers needed somebody to blame for all the dead livestock or for them being bad ranchers, or for some other explainable occurrence like showing their penis to the fucking goat or showing their penis to the rancher but others were accused of actions far more sinister and less likely to be made up. For example, in 1521, a one Pierre Burgot and Mikkel Verdun were executed as werewolves in France, if you couldn't tell by the names. Historical records indicate that they were a serial killer tag team, much like uh, if Macho Man Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan decided to start eating people. In 1573, again in France, another werewolf was executed. His name was Gilles Garnier, otherwise known as the Werewolf of Dole. He was a confessed serial killer, and there are numerous accounts such as these, mostly in Europe, coincidentally. Uh, interestingly, real wolves were plentiful in Europe at this time, so could people have just been associating the carnivorous animal with people that behaved like animals? Perhaps, most likely. That is kind of probably what happened. But... Let's dive a little bit into these stories, because I tell you, they are fucking disturbing. <sighs> I love a good fucking werewolf story. Actually, I, wanted, I found other ones that were more disturbing. Let's dive into these. So, the first of which... 
uh, we're going to talk about the alarming rate at which werewolf accusations were very common in Europe in the 16th and 17th century. People were accused of both werewolfry and fucking witchery. Usually they served a political need, I would imagine, just like uh, the witch trials did. If you remember the old Ghostlands podcast that I covered where uh, Salem witch trials and boner problems and shit. Uh, but without any further ado, in the 18th century, the former French province of Gévaudan was terrorized by the so-called La Bétie de Gévaudan. That's the uh, the beast of Gévaudan that don't speak uh, cheese monkey. The beast was first spotted by a woman tending cattle in the forest near Langangangnaoyo in June, and her pet bulls scared it off. But not, lo not long after attacking it, or not long after it attacked and killed a 14-year-old girl, coincidentally. Over the ensuing months, sightings and attacks mounted. Those who had seen the beast described a large wolf with unusual red fur streaked with black. And it was prolific. According to a 1980 study, there were 210 attacks in all, 113 of which were fatal. That's insane. In 1765, King Louis XV decreed that the French state would help slay the beast. And when the appointed professional wolf hunter... <laughs> God, I love these fucking wolf hunter generals and, like, witch daddy king supremes. Uh, they appointed professional wolf hunters, and one of which was Jean-Carl-Marc-Antoine Vamoul de Enneville. And his son, Jean-Francois. And they failed to kill the beast. The king sent Lieutenant, Lieutenant of the Hunt, Francois-Antoine, instead. Uh, Antoine slayed three huge gray wolves, yet the attack still continued. Some say he screwed the pooch. <coughs> huh. It wasn't until a local hunter named Jean Chastel shot a wolf on June 19, 1767, that the attacks were declared done. Nowadays, it's thought that the Beast of Givedon wasn't a single wolf at all, but many individual wolves. Man, these people were simple. When France went on a wolf-killing rampage, these wolves were slain, one by one, until none were left and the attacks abated. Not that killer wolves were unusual, but according to historian Jean-Marc Maricau, some 7,600 people were killed by wolves in France in the years between 1362 and 1916. Now let's take for a minute the lone wolf stereotype, why people think it's cool, and why I'm going to tell you it's not. You know, you've seen uh, people that pretend to be bikers that put the lone wolf fucking nomad patches on their shit. <sighs> we know no club wants you. You don't have to remind us why the lone wolf is bad. So this could also explain some of the, uh, some of the theories on the fucking werewolves. It's so like, in theory, maybe not a human wolf, but definitely a fucking uh, not a good antisocial wolf. <sighs> okay, this is why the lone wolf is bad. Thank you for your patience today. My research, my researching machine is going very slow. Let's go at all the werewolf pornography I stumbled upon, I think. Uh, okay, so the term lone wolf refers to an individual acting without help from a group, as in a wolf strayed from the pack. It's now often used to downplay uh, acts of terrorism committed by people all across the world. A lone wolf to, uh, you know, kind of distance them from a terrorist organization or a gang or something. You hear it a lot in the news in America of mass shootings and shit. A lone wolf gunman. 
or the guy in Tunisia that killed 86 people, so on and so forth. Um, so the lone wolf is usually kind of used as a descriptive term after an attack. It's also laden with other meanings. It means that the person should not be treated as a terrorist. They should be treated as an isolated problem, which means if you kill a wolf, all the other wolves are fine in theory because he was acting alone. That's simply not the case most of the time. And also, usually lone wolves are completely fucking insane uh, because they have radicalized. They're fucking crazy. They're completely fucking feral. Like, there's pack feral, and then there's feral, feral. And if they're too fucking crazy to be in a pack, that's not good. Uh, I was actually... I was actually uh, attacked by... Well, it wasn't a fucking wolf. It was an Akita, but there are packs of wild dogs that, that roam through Anza Borrego, uh, which is a desert near where I live, near-ish. Uh, and I got attacked by one of them. I... <laughs> For whatever fucking reason, the pack didn't attack me. But later on in the day, a lone wandering dog did. Fucking cunt. <sighs> anyway, let's get back on to the Livonian werewolf. There's a very charming graphic illustration of a man on all fours with lots of hair devouring children. <laughs> uh, werewolf confessions can be quite peculiar. Take Thies of Kaltenbrunn. Living in a Swedish Livonia in the 17th century, Theus was widely believed among his neighbors to be a werewolf who had dealings casually, however, with the devil. Local authorities didn't give a shit because Theus was in his 80s. What harm could he do with a few bullshit stories? Oh, if only they'd known. But when they brought him in for questioning on an unrelated matter in 1691, he voluntarily began divulging details of his werewolf lifestyle although with many an inconsistency. According to his account, Theus had given up lycanthropy 10 years prior to his appearance before the judges in 1691. And before that, he and other werewolves would change into wolves on St. Lucia's Day, Pentecost, Midsummer's Night, and donning magical wolf belts, although he later changed his story and said he just stripped naked to turn into a wolf. They would then maraud the countryside, killing farm animals, cooking and eating them. Uh, if you wanted to know how wolves cook meat, he declared they were human at this point and not wolves. His story only grew stranger, though, but he claimed that werewolves were the agents of God and would travel to hell to battle the devil and his witches, bringing back grain and livestock the witches had stolen. In fact, he said he had done just so one year earlier, contradicting the earlier claim of having renounced lycanthropy ten years ago. Man, it's like homeless people that talk to you outside of your fucking job, man. When it was revealed that Theus was not a devout Lutheran and indeed practiced a form of folk magic involving charms and blessing, the judges ordered Theus flogged and exiled. And what happened to the strange motherfucker after that is unknown. I think he was uh, full of shit. I had a guy outside my work a couple days ago that was trying to tell me that he was a fucking five-star general in the army and that's why he didn't have any toes. I said, yeah, you were the president. Like, no, no, man, I was a fucking fighter pilot. He's like, oh, yeah? Where'd you get your degree in physics? Then he changed his story again to being a fucking submarine commander. So I asked him where he got his nuclear engineering degree and commended him for having not one but two master's degrees because he claimed to be in charge of a nuclear sub. <laughs> and then he uh, said he was, in fact, a marine. Oh, were you? How'd the crucible go? Didn't know. Said he couldn't remember. And I dicked him around for probably 35 minutes just listening to him talk. And at the end of it, 
The guy that invented the gazelle was his dad, as was Donald Trump and Charlie Sheen. And then I was talking shit about him in the bathroom a little later in the day, and sure enough, he was hanging out in the stalls just correcting my story about him. Oh, the places you'll go. In uh, 1685, a wolf was terrorizing and killing humans in the town of Neusis in the principality of Ansbach in what is now Germany. Uh, this was not unusual, but the town's chief magistrate, Mikhail Light, had just died, and he was a cruel and very unpopular man. And it was said that the wolf visited Light's residence, so it was only a small leap at the time for people to claim that Wolf was Light, returned as a werewolf for his sins to punish the town some more. The wolf's death was not terribly eventful. The people organized the hunt, chased the wolf into a well, and killed it. But what they did to the body is pretty disgusting. They paraded it through the streets, much like Rob Stark in Game of Thrones, and they prepared it for display. They cut off the muzzle, dressed it in human clothes, placed a wig on its head and a mask on its face so that it kind of resembled the man in question, liked. Then they hung the body from the gallows so that everybody might enjoy the sight. And I tell you, there's a very disturbing hand drawing of it that I have here. Quite disturbing. After some time, the wolf was removed from the gallows and its corpse preserved and put on a permanent display at a local museum because that's not weird or creepy in the least. <laughs> the werewolf of Alares, widely thought of as Spain's first ever serial killer, Manuel Blanco Romansada, is unusual for a werewolf uh, operating late in the mid-19th century. Actually, Romansada was an unusual case in a few ways. He was born in 1809, He'd been raised as a girl until the age of six, at which point the doctors discovered that he did, in fact, have a penis. He grew up, married, and worked as a tailor, and when his wife died in 1833, he took up the traveling salesman trade, also guiding travelers around Spain and Portugal. <laughs> his first known murder was Vicente Fernandez. What the fuck? The constable of Leon. What the fuck? Fernandez was found dead in 1844 after attempting to collect a debt from Ramasada. Rather than face the law, he fled to Portugal after killing him. During this time, he murdered several people who had hired him as a guide. He was not smart. This may come as a surprise to you, but he was noticed selling their clothes. And rumors started to circulate that he was selling soap made with dead people. And, that, and then a complaint was lodged and he was arrested. He confessed almost immediately to 13 murders. But here is where it gets wolfish. He said he had been cursed with lycanthropy, but upon being asked to demonstrate his transformation abilities, he declared that the curse had passed and he was no longer afflicted. He actually, he was actually acquitted of four of the deaths. Uh, those forensic examinations found that they had been committed by fucking wolves. However, he had been found guilty of the rest. Uh, an examination of Ramansada by doctors determined that he had invented his curse and he was sentenced to ride the lightning. This was commuted to life imprisonment on the request of a French hypnotist who believed that he was suffering from a delusion and a petition to stay of execution so that he might study the man. In 1863, a newspaper reported that Ramansada passed away that year in prison from stomach cancer. What about the werewolf of Bedburg? One of the most famous werewolf cases is that of Peter Stump, a wealthy farmer who was accused of being a serial murderer, cannibal, and a werewolf in Rhineland in 1589. In the years preceding Stump's arrest, the county town, or the country town rather, of Bedburg, which is dangerously close to Bedbug in my mind, had been plagued with horrors. And I mean like frightening nightmares, not like street walking good time ladies. 
It started with dead and mutilated cattle, but bodies of townsfolk were soon found in the fields, and initially, it was thought that a wolf or wolves were attacking. But the creature evaded capture. Finally, in 1589, a hunting party managed to corner the wolf with towns, and when the humans approached, they saw, according to a report, not a wolf at all, and instead they uh, cornered Stump, old Pete. The most damaging piece of evidence was that Stump's left hand had been cut off, and the wolf had had its left forepaw cut off. Since wolf and man had the same injury, wolf and man are the same. Stump confessed, but it's a questionable confession at best. If you're shoving hot pokers into somebody's ass and asking them questions, they're probably going to tell you what you want to know. He had been subjugated to torture, subjected to torture, including the rack, which is not staring at the aforementioned ladies of the night's tits. It is, in fact, very painful. He said that he'd made a pact with the devil when he was 12 years old. He'd been given a magic belt, which allowed him to turn into a wolf. He confessed to the killing of 14 children and two pregnant women. He ate of their flesh and ravished their bodies, and he killed his own son and had a sexual relationship with his own daughter. He was sentenced to die in the most awful way that they could possibly think of, and that was the breaking wheel. And he had flesh torn from his body with red-hot pincers. His limbs were broken with blunt sides of axes so that he might not rise from the grave. And then finally, the icing on the cake was he was beheaded, and his head was placed on a pole with figures of a breaking wheel and a wolf on it as a warning to others. His daughter and his side bitch were also flayed. Uh, his daughter's crime was being raped, and his mistress was being a wolf lover. And then they were strangled and burned. It is not known whether the crimes were actually committed by Old Stump, and at this time the region was deeply affected by something called the Cologne War. Stump was a Protestant convert, and the region had been seized by Catholics in 1857. His death was to the Catholics' advantage, and an, a as considerable wealth would fall to them. In addition, Stump's death could have served as a strong warning to other Protestants. Let's talk about the Cologne War for a second, because that sounds fucking disgusting. It was a conflict between Protestants and Catholics that uh, devastated the electorate of Cologne, which is a historical principality of the Holman, Holy, Rome, Holy Roman Empire within present-day uh, North Rhine, Germany, Westphalia. The war occurred within the context of the Protestant Reformation in Germany and the subsequent Counter-Reformation, and concurrently with the Dutch Revolt and French Wars of Religion. <sighs> okay, so it's another fucking European religious war. Anyway, so those were some interesting accounts of werewolves in history. Um, let's talk a little bit more about that, though. So, today werewolves are known mythical creatures found in fiction or in old stories, but there are several medical conditions that can mimic the appearance of a werewolf and have contributed to early beliefs in the literal existence of the creatures. One such hypothesis, hypothesis uh, which creates unusually long hair in, in its victims, is called hyper... Oh, for fuck's sake. Hypter... Hyperchiosis? It just creates long hair on the face and the body. Uh, second condition, porphyria, is characterized by extreme sensitivity to light, thus encouraging its victims only to go out at night, uh, lest seizures, anxiety, and other symptoms befall you. Neither of these rare conditions can turn anybody into a werewolf, of course, but centuries ago, when belief in witches, vampires, and magic was common, it didn't take much to spawn werewolf bullshit stories. Uh, now a quick message from someone that does not sponsor me. Do yourself a favor. Take both hands off the wheel and touch the stereo. 
Do you feel the power? Ah, yes, friend. There's a lot of evil in the world, but there is also light. And I have been sent to shine a light on all degenerates, philanderers, liberals, and other evildoers and expose them for what they really are. Don't waste your money on unnecessary and corrupting material possessions. Give it to me. There's only one thing that will save you. A highly fortified structure in the shape of the most powerful thing on the planet. Me. Degenerates will ruin this great city. In my wonderful book, I tell of the impending disaster about to befall this planet. Nuclear holocaust, plagues of flying rodents, the seas rising up and turning yellow. It is coming. It is written by me. But you can save yourself. Contribute to the Pastor Richard Salvation Statue Fund. Pick up your telephone. Call now. 1-866-9-SAVE-ME. And then there's some other stupid disorder that's called clinical lycanthropy, and it's recognized as a medical condition in which a person believes himself or herself to be an animal, and indeed there are rare cases where people have claimed to be werewolves, of course, but Peter Stubb was one of them. He claimed to own a belt of wolfskin, blah, blah, blah. We just talked about that. He also claimed to have killed a dozen people over 25 years. Um, Yes, we've been over this. He was decapitated on Halloween 1589, headless body burned at the stake. No real evidence of his crimes. Mentally ill and delusional, though, for sure. However, Stubb, old Pete, was far from alone. In the Middle Ages, werewolves were thought to mostly just be created by witches, which would be the woman in your town with the biggest tits and the best-looking eyes. And the two became closely synonymous with each other, just as tens of thousands of accused witches were put to death, usually in gruesome and very arousing and sadistic ways. Tens of thousand accused werewolves were similarly dispatched, usually with less hits out. Because lycanthropy was seen as a curse, werewolves were often thought of as victims as much as villains. The transformation from man to wolf was said to be torturous. Uh, recall the scenes in the film like An American Werewolf in London or Wolfman, and many sought cures for real and or imagined symptoms. Traditionally, there are three principal ways in which a werewolf can be scourged of his demons, writes some fuck-ass named Ian Woodward in The Werewolf Delusion. He may be cursed medically and surgically, but he may be exercised in the most drastic. He may be shot with a special bullet, typically a silver bullet. And when the medicinal and surgical cures were attempted, they invoked lots of bloodletting, vomiting, and vinegar drinking. Uh, in fact, Woodward also notes, So severe, so brutal were the cures advocated by the early medical practitioners that, not surprisingly, a great many werewolfic patients died by the hands of those who promised them salvation. Uh, werewolves are best known shapeshifters. They are not... They weren't the only were-animals said to exist around the world. There were often foxes, were-dogs, were-tigers, were-snakes, where's the hooch, were-hares, were-bears, where all the white women at, even were-crocodiles. And, of course, wolves are more threatening than dogs and foxes. That's the reason that most werewolves and films about werewolves are scary. And Wallace and Gromit, the curse of the were-rabbit, was a fucking joke. Like vampires, werewolves have been around a millennia, and nothing short of a silver bullet is likely to stop it from being around another 2,000 years more. Interesting, I think so, because it perpetuates to this day. At the law firm of DeLeo and Furex, we understand that sometimes life throws you a curveball. We help our blue chip clients get their lives back after circumstances have conspired against them. Just listen. 
It was an unfortunate accident what happened to my wife on that precarious cliff. The layer when Fjords can't bring my wife back, but they made sure I didn't end up in the slammer. I was unfortunate enough to be found with 15 kilos in my spare tire. I was so mad at the auto repair shop that sold me that tire. Thanks to Dealey on Furax, the district attorney saw it that way too. I, I accidentally torched a Quickie Mart when my medication ran out. <laughs> Dealey on Furax helped me and the community by ensuring a healthy settlement from the pharmaceutical company. At DeLeo and Furax, we understand the judicial system and will ensure the truth is heard, no matter how improbable. We're not cheap, but what price can you put on truth? Call DeLeo and Furax today at 866-974-2333. That's 866-9-SHADY. DeLeo and Furax. Accidents happen, and we'll prove it. So quite obviously, religion has had an obvious impact on the werewolf myth. In areas where Christianity was prevalent, being a werewolf was an association with witchcraft, as we were talking about, and the devil. Even the wolf girdle found a place in this Christian belief in werewolves. They believed that the belt was furnished by the devil for use of his minions. Even Ovid's tale was based on religion in the sense that his form was a punishment from the gods. So does that mean that religion is the source for the werewolf myth? Maybe. It's probably not, though. It's more likely that religion has simply influenced a belief that manifested in human history for one or two reasons. Either like the Minotaur, werewolves were thought to explain something horrible, uh, something wrong with you, or they are real. Which I doubt. Several reasons for the appearance of the werewolf myth have been speculated. It's possible that real wolf attacks were actually the cause and the superstition led people to feel the wor fear the worst. Suspects were subsequently tortured into confessions and uh, poof, you have proof cementing the belief in werewolves. There's also the possibility that the werewolf myth was created to explain rabies. Humans do get rabies from being bitten by rabid animals after all. And what does it look like when a human gets rabies, you might ask? What are the symptoms? Well, I'll tell you, God damn it! Just as soon as my uh, typing machine. Okay, here we go. Signs and symptoms of rabies. Irritability, aggressiveness, excessive movements or agitation, confusion, bizarre or strange thoughts, delusions or hallucinations, muscle spasms, unusual postures, seizures, a.k.a. convulsions, Weakness or paralysis when a person cannot move parts of their body. Hmm. Hmm. I think you can imagine this playing out rather fucking creepy. So, let's see, that's not even the worst of it. Uh, extreme sensitivity to light, weakness, or paralysis. Somebody with rabies can produce a lot of saliva and be appearing to be foaming at the mouth. And muscle spasm, spasms in their throat might make it hard for them to swallow, which causes the foaming at the mouth effect that it's often been long associated with the rabies infection, and it also leads to a fear of choking on what seems like a fear of water, which is another well-known rabies sign, uh, that you could tie someone to a stick and force them to watch a river and they'll go insane, allegedly. So what's caused? what causes it? Rabies is caused by the rabies virus. Infected animals have the virus in their saliva. The virus enters the body through broken skin on the eye, nose, mouth, and travels through the nerves to the brain. And it multiplies and causes the brain to inflame and causes serious damage. Bites from a wild, infected animal cause most U.S. rabies cases. Raccoons are the most common carriers, but bats also can infect people. Skunks, foxes, also can be infected, and a few cases have been reported in wolves, coyotes, bobcats, and ferrets. Small rodents such as hamsters, squirrels, chipmunks, mice, rabbits are rarely infected, and widespread animal vaccinations have made transmission from dogs to people rare in modern day. 
In the rest of the world, exposure to rabid dogs is a very common way to cause transmission to humans, which is why in other fuckhole shitville of the United States, or not in the United States, of the rest of the world, they are not very kind to dogs. Uh, and that ends fucking backwards-ass religious reasons. Rabies is not contagious from person to person, however, so the virus most often spreads through bites from an infected animal, but it can also spread if the animal's saliva or spit gets directly in the person's eye, nose, or mouth, or an open wound, much like using the toilets in jail. There's no way to know how to diagnose it if an animal has rabies. When a person is bitten or exposed to an animal that might be sick, doctors don't wait for a diagnosis. They treat it immediately. Lab tests can check for the infection, but the results come in too late for the disease, and that would be way too late for them to treat it. A biting animal that's, that's caught can be tested to see if the virus is in its brain, but it must be euthanized put to sleep first. So if it's a healthy pet, such as a dog, cat, ferret, experts recommend watching the animal for 10 days to see if it gets sick. If it's a rabbit... Rabbit, rodent, or other small animal that doesn't usually spread rabies, a doctor can check with the local health department to decide what to do. How do you treat it if the symptoms start? There's no effective treatment. There, that's why doctors focus on prevention, and they try to stop it right after a person gets bit and is potentially exposed. Anyone who thinks they may have been exposed to the rabies virus must get medical care right away or shoot yourself in the fucking head. Don't do that. That's not medical. That's not real medical advice. That's just me being a douche. Um, the doctors give two shots for the rabies vaccination, and they provide protection right away while the vaccine starts working. The first is rabies immune globulin, and the second is the vaccine, which is given in a series of four doses on days 0, 3, 7, and 14. Day 0 is the first of the dose. People with weakened immune systems get an extra dose on the 28th. How do you, ex how do you prevent exposure to rabies? Vaccinate your pets. That's it. <laughs> Don't feed stray cats, please. Teach kids to stay away from wild animals. And what else should you know? If you or somebody you know has been bitten, especially by an unknown dog or wild animal, watch the bite, call your doctor, call local animal control, and if you know the owner of the animal that bit your child, get all the information that you can. Boom. So, if you could... I can see that. Someone getting bit by a fucking uh, German ferret, becoming insane with an enraged brain, and then just... Attacking people in some sort of a weird fucking delusion? Maybe. It's weird that it happened more than once, but maybe. Maybe if it's like a core fundamental of your religious beliefs, though, it's more ingrained in the society as a whole, so that's a possibility, too. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, one possible cause for the werewolf myth aligns very well with historical werewolf hunts, and that is that people were trying to explain something as simple and simultaneously as complex as serial killers. The vampire myth can be traced back to royals who had a particular taste for bloodshed, like Vlad the Impaler. However, the vampire myth only explains a lust for blood and not for human flesh, and history tells us that cannibalism is a trait of not all serial killers, but some definitely have it. Therefore, another explanation may have been needed. Enter the werewolf myth. Wolves eat humans. Not so much nowadays, but if they could get to us, they definitely would. And there's no denying that serial killers like uh, that fucking asshole Albert Fish and Jeffrey Dahmer do tend to behave like animals. So how the werewolf myth came to be will never officially be known. Uh, it could be originated from Ovid, but it could also have existed in oral history before Ovid and of any of the above causes that I've mentioned, any are plausible. However, we cannot possibly know unless we find conclusive evidence that werewolves have or have not existed.
If we find one that answers the question, we are much less likely to find an answer. And if there are no werewolves, it's doubtful that we'll find a little postscript from Ovid reading, uh, I made this up. <laughs> However, one might say that the fucking transformation of men into wolves could be just assumed that it's horse shit. But, you know, there's people that are willing to believe anything. So, some legends maintain that werewolves shapeshift as well due to a curse, and others say that they transformed with the help of some sort of a device, like a wolf belt or a belt, and others claim that people become wolves after being scratched or bit by a werewolf. But in many werewolf stories, a person only turns into a wolf if there's a full moon. And that theory may not be too far-fetched, maybe the transformation to a wolf, but if you use the wolf as a metaphor for violence or bad temper, uh, let me read you some fucking lunacy studies. According to a study conducted at Australia's Cavalry Matter Newcastle Hospital, a full moon brings out the beast in many people. The study found that 91 violent acute behavior incidents at the hospital between August 2008 and 2009, 23% happened during a full moon. Patients attacked staff, displayed wolf-like behavior such as biting, spitting, and scratching, and although many were under the influence of drugs or alcohol, it's unclear why they became this violent when the moon was full. So, let me dive a little bit more into that. Lunacy, a scientific history. And read all the weird shit associated with the moon, because I, I don't believe in much, but I believe in this. This is something I genuinely have subscribed to. Because, have you ever noticed that you can just feel when the moon is full? Like you're fucking tired, or you're, you have no patience, or you notice everybody else fighting with each other? Just look for it. Um, so does a, true, a full moon really trigger strange behavior? Across centuries, many people have uttered this phrase, and it's something that I said fucking today, <laughs> and the day before, and the day before that. There must be a full moon out there, in an attempt to explain weird happenings at night, which is when I work. Indeed, there was a Roman goddess of the moon, and she bore a name that remains familiar to this day. And that name is going to come up right after this next message from somebody that does not sponsor me. Suspense. Howdy, partner. It's 4.30 in the morning here at Farewell Ranch, and it's time to get up and work the old cows. Get up, y'all! At Farewell Ranch, old people don't sit around stagnating, watching game shows, and talking about the good old days, sinking into the grave in a urine-soaked mess. At Farewell Ranch, they sweat and toil until the breaking point and keep that miserable contemplation of mortality at bay. Hell, it's steering time. We'll work Grandpa so hard, he'll wish he was dead. At the end of the day, he'll sit down in the bluegrass, eat a bowl of commemorative beans, and enjoy sing-alongs at one of our nightly funerals. It's the Cowboys Code. Work hard, don't shower, and die in your boots. Right, Norm? Ah, my prostate. Farewell, Ranch. The only way to ride into the sunset. So the name of that goddess in Roman history was a sassy jackass named Luna. And you might recognize that name as the prefix of the word lunatic. There was a Greek, that's right, a Greek philosopher named Aristotle and a Roman historian named Pliny the Elder, who suggested that the brain was moistest, and it was the moistest organ in the body, and thereby most susceptible to the influence of the moon. What does that have to do with anything? Moist. Moist. Does that word drive anyone else fucking nuts? 
especially in a historical setting. Um, uh, it influences of the moon, which triggered the tide, and belief in the lunar lunacy effect, or the Transylvanian effect, as it is sometimes called, persisted in Europe through the Middle Ages when humans were widely reputed to transmogrify into werewolves or vampires during a full moon. Even today, people think the mystical power of the moon induces erratic behavior. I do. I get no fucking patience when, the full, when there's a full moon, and I can tell without looking at the moon. Psychiatric hospital admissions, suicides, homicides, emergency room calls, traffic accidents, fights at professional hockey games, dog bites, and all manner of strange events occur way more. One survey revealed that 45% of college students believe moonstruck humans are prone to unusual behaviors. Another survey suggests that mental health professionals may still be more likely than lay people to hold this conviction. In 2007, several police departments in the United Kingdom even added officers on full moon nights in an effort to cope with the presumed higher crime rates. Shit works. Following Aristotle and Pliny the Elder, some contemporary authors such as a Miami psychiatrist, Arnold Lever, have conjectured that the full moon's supposed effects on behavior arise from its influence on the water. The human body, after all, is 80% water. So perhaps the moon works its mischievous magic by somehow distributing uh, or redistributing the alignment of water molecules in the nervous system. Yep. But there are at least three reasons why this explanation does not hold water. You'll pardon my pun. First, the uh, gravitational effects of the moon are far too minuscule to generate any meaningful effects on brain activity, uh, let alone behavior. And that was proven by the late astronomer George Abel of the University of California uh, in L.A., that is UCLA. And he noted a mosquito sitting on our arm exerts a more powerful gravitational pull on us than the moon does. Yet to the best of our knowledge, there have been no reports of mosquito lunacy uh, in that effect. Second, the moon's gravitational force affects only open bodies of water, such as oceans and lakes, but not contained sources of water, such as the human brain. Third, the gravitational effect of the moon is just as potent during new moons, which is when the moon is invisible to us, as it is during full moons. Huh. There is more serious a problem for fervent believers in the lunacy Lunar theory, no evidence that it exists. And Florida International University psychologist James Rautan, uh, Colorado State University astronomer Roger Culver, and the University of Saskatchewan psychologist Ivan Kelly have searched far and wide for any consistent behavioral effects of the full moon. In all cases, they've come up empty-handed by combining the results of multiple studies and treating them as though they were one huge study, a statistical procedure called meta-analysis they have found that full moons are entirely unrelated to a host of events, including crime, suicide, psychiatric problems, and crisis call centers. In their 1985 review of 37 studies entitled Much Ado About the Full Moon, which appeared in one of psychology's premier journals, Psychological Bulletin, Rotan and Kelly humorously bid adieu to the full moon effect and concluded that further research was unnecessary. But persistent critics have disagreed with the conclusion, myself included, pointing to a few positive findings that emerge in scattered studies of uh, shock doctors and bullshit artists. Still, even the handful of research claims that seem to support full moon effects have collapsed on closer inspection. In one study published in 1982, an author team reported that traffic accidents were at an alarming, alarmingly higher frequency on full moon nights than on other nights. Yet a fatal flaw marred these findings because in the period under consideration, full moons were more common on the weekend when more people drive and drink. When the authors reanalyzed their data to eliminate 
this confounding factor, the effect seemed to vanish. So if the lunar lunacy effect is merely an astronomical and psychological urban legend, why is it so widespread? There are several probable reasons. Media coverage almost always will play a role. Scores of Hollywood horror flicks portray a full moon and uh, the peak time of spookiness during the full moon. And that's usually when all the stabbing, shootings, and psychotic behaviors tend to happen. Terrible things, my son. You've done terrible things. Perhaps more important, research demonstrates that many people fall prey to the phenomenon that the University of Wisconsin-Madison psychologist Lauren and Jean Chapman termed the illusory correlation. That is the perception of an association that does not, in fact, exist. For example, many people who have joint pain insist that their pain increases during rainy weather, although research uh, makes that, that claim fucking horseshit. Much like the watery mirages we observe on the freeway during hot summer days, illusory correlations can fool us into perceiving phenomenon in their absence. I knew a guy that said he knew... <laughs> I worked with this dude. And at the time I worked a sales floor job. And he said that he knew when a woman that he had slept with came into the store because he remembered her scent. And I was fucking 18 and I believed him. Anyway, uh, illusory correlations result in part of our mind's propensity to attend and recall most events better than non-events. So when there's a full moon and something decidedly odd happens, we take note of it, tell others about it, and we remember it. So we're making a self-fulfilling prophecy. We do so because such co-correlations or co-occurrences fit with our preconceptions. Indeed, one study showed that psychiatric nurses who believed in the lunar effect wrote more notes during the full moon. That is a fact. Um, they wrote more notes about patients' peculiar behavior than did nurses who did not believe in this effect also. And in contrast, when there is a full moon and nothing odd happens, the non-event quickly fades from our memory. And as a result of our selective recall... We erroneously perceive an association between full moons and a myriad of bizarre fucking shit. Still, the correlation, uh, it's an explanation, though probably a crucial piece of the puzzle, does not account for how the full moon notion got started. One intriguing idea for its origins comes from us, courtesy of psychiatrist Charles L. Raisin, now at Emory University, and several of his colleagues, according to Raisin, the lunar lunacy effect may possess a small kernel of truth in that it may once have been genuine. He formulates some conjecture that before the advent of outdoor lighting in modern times and the bright light of the full moon, it deprived people who were living outside of much needed sleep, including those that had severe mental orders, mental disorders. <sighs> Think about Alaska because sleep deprivation often triggers erratic behavior in people with very specific psychological conditions such as, Bipolar disorder type 1, the full moon, may have been linked to a heightened rate of bizarre or weird shit in long bygone eras. So the lunar lunacy effect is, in Raisin and his colleagues' terms, a cultural fossil, but it may have existed. We may never know whether this ingenious explanation is in fact correct, but go to Alaska during the summer and leave your fucking blinds open and you tell me how you feel. But in today's world, at least, the lunar lunacy effect appears to be no better supported than is the idea that the moon itself is made of green fucking cheese. And now, a note and word from someone that does not sponsor this show. Hello, I am Fernando Martinez. I think by now you know I am an emotional kind of guy. People stop me in the street and say, Fernando, what the hell is wrong with me? Silk shirt, hairy chest, enough aftershave to drown a household pet, but I still 
cannot get a woman. I tell them you are an ignorant fool. Without a symbol of power and fertility around your neck, what kind of woman is going to respect you? That is why I have teamed up with Medallion Man, the shop for medallion needs. Medallion Man caters to all levels of masculinity. For the strong, silent type, a medallion the size of a hubcap will say everything that needs to be said. Even singing medallions for the Casanova, who knows, music is the food of love. Model trains, dollhouses, diapers, whatever your interest, we've got a medallion for Jewel. Don't forget, every woman knows if you can't support a medallion, you can't support a family. Now, I may not know lunacy to be true, but goddammit, I know that to be true. That medallion shit, that's a fact. How do I know? Because I'm Greek. We invented wearing necklaces. All right, so there may actually be some pseudoscience also that that could confirm something of <sighs> similar nature to a werewolf something or the other. So are werewolves real? Most likely not. The werewolf phenomenon may have a weak medical explanation, though. It takes, for instance, the case of Peter, the wild boy. Um... This is one of those very interesting European inbreeding stories, I think, but that's just me. I have a bit of a slight bias towards certain aspects of the imperial family. <sighs> okay, I'm going to read you a few of these stories, but this is the the one that really inspired the most, like, buttholes to pucker of. And that was the werewolf phenomenon that may have a medical explanation, a.k.a. Peter the Wild Boy. For instance, in 1725, he was found wandering nude on all fours through a German forest. Many thought he was a werewolf, or at least raised by wolves. He ate with his hands, couldn't speak, and he was eventually adopted by the court of King George I and King George II and lived out his days as their pet. Research has shown that Peter likely had something called Pitt-Hopkins syndrome, a condition discovered in 1978 that causes lack of speech. Seizures, tardive dyskinesia, distinct facial features, difficulty breathing, and intellectual challenges to say the least. Other medical conditions that may have encouraged this werewolf mania that has occurred throughout history would be lycanthropy, which is a very, very, very fucking rare psychological condition that causes most people that have it to believe they're changing into a wolf or some other animal. But that is so fucking rare. It's, I think, region-centric. I don't, I don't think it, it strays from a region. Let me double-check because I don't want to stick my foot in my mouth and be corrected by fucking rude comments on the internet. Um, a form of madness involving the delusion of becoming an animal, usually a wolf, corresponding with altered behavior. Is it a real disease? Clinical lycanthropy is a rare psychiatric symptom with delusional belief that they're a werewolf. They grunt, claw, feel for their body, and they're covered with... They feel their bodies if they're covered with hair and their nails are elongated. Some people strongly believe they're in the process of becoming a wolf. It was first mentioned, mentioned in 60 AD in Europe and introduced by a guy named Petronius. Hmm. Interesting. A dry tongue and a great thirst. It also kind of sounds like rabies to me. <laughs> One of the most searched topics is, who invented werewolf? God, fucking people are so goddamn fucking dumb. All right. Let's see, a little bit more. Of course, none of my listeners are because you're listening to me speak in circles, so you must be pretty clever if you're able to decipher what it is that I'm saying to you. Um, the condition doesn't actually mean you're a werewolf. It just means you think you're a werewolf. So, uh, 
The idea of shape-shifting humans has been around for a long time. In clinical practice, many cases are missed because mental health professionals are insufficiently aware of the existence and the uniqueness of this disorder. Condition is generally thought to be unusual expression of another disorder, such as uh, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or severe psychotic depression. Indeed, in reviewing all 56 cases of delusional metamorphosis into an animal, it's been found that 25% of the patients were diagnosed with schizophrenia, 23 with psychotic depression, and 20% with bipolar disorder. Among the patients, 34 were men, 22 were women, and their symptoms lasted from hours to fucking decades. Ah, uh, man, that's something. There was the first reported case, which was published in 1842, and it was described as a man admitted to an asylum in Nancy, France, who was convinced that he had turned into a wolf. To demonstrate this, the man parted his lips with his fingers to show his alleged wolf teeth and complained that he had cloven feet and a body covered with long hair. He said that he only wanted to eat raw meat, but when it was given to him, he refused it because it was not rotten enough. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. Other patients in this report had similar delusions about changes in their appearance. One saw the head of a wolf when looking at himself in the mirror. Fuck that shit. Another was convinced the bones in their body had been replaced by a pig's. And one felt claws growing out of their feet. So it's... it's for millennia, explanations for lycanthropy were mostly metaphysical, and though modern science raised the idea that a brain disease causes the condition, doesn't necessarily prove it. Various brain imaging studies have pointed to specific brain areas that appear to be essential for creating this sense of bullshit. The brain regions include the area of the brain's cortex, which is the outer layer that are responsible for movement and sensation. So if you've ever gotten some hold of some of that really weird yellow chicken speed, you know exactly what this feels like. But if not... Um, this could also be equated to fucking bad drugs, like very strong drugs that you're not used to, I would imagine, because I don't fucking do them. But uh, it could be anything. It's really, allegedly, those drugs are very similar to actually having psychosis, too. Uh, the same feeling, I would, I've been told, actually fucking can transpire. But anyway, so, where was I getting at? Peter, the wild boy, he was a pet. So, let's talk about some feral children, because I love these stories. Um, one of the earliest English language accounts of a feral child concerns that of John Liège, who was a boy supposedly spent the most of his youth in isolation in the Belgian woods. According to a 1644 account by Sir Kenham Digby, John first fled to the woods at the age of five to escape enemy soldiers during a religious war. But when his family and the rest of the village returned to their homes after the danger passed, he was too terrified to come out of hiding. He struck off alone because that made more sense to him into the depths of the forest where he survived for 16 years on dirt and berries. <laughs> he finally returned to society at age 21 when he was caught trying to steal food from a local farm. By then, he was reportedly naked and completely covered in hair and had quite forgotten the use of all language. Most astonishingly of all, all his years in the bush had led him to develop a weird dog-like sense of smell, allowing him to sniff out food from great distances. And according to Digby, John eventually began talking again, but that's rare. And his heightened senses dulled once he went back to civilization. That's so fucking weird that he was able to reassimilate into society. I, I uh, am fascinated by these fucking cases, admittedly, and that is uh, not common. Huh. So we went over Peter the Wild Boy. Marie Angelique Memier Leblanc. Excuse me. 
And we will talk about after a message from this sponsor that has nothing to do with me. Yeah. I'm a VIP, and I want to live around people just like myself. Rich and divorced. Shady Acres. I'm Everett Carrington. Shady Acres is an incredible, upscale, state-of-the-art, top-notch condominium development. Condom. A short drive out of town on some pristine wetlands. Away from the noise and uninvited diversity of the city. Shady Acres. And when you buy into that dream that is Shady Acres, not only do you get a luxurious 5,000-square-foot condo with underground parking for your newly acquired sports car, but there's also a jacuzzi for entertaining. Jacuzzi. Each condo is tastefully furnished with a stock bar and an exotic waterbed shaped like a dollar sign. Shady Acres also has a golf range, firing range, helipad, and exotic petting zoo. When your kids come to visit, you're successful. Start defining your lifestyle. Start defining yourself. Shady Acres. Shady Acres. Happiness is worth the price. Shady Acres. Ah, Shady Acres. All right, so in 1731, the French village of Zongi was stunned by sightings of a wild young woman armed with a wooden stick. The savage girl of Champagne was clad in animal skins and a tattered dress and appeared to be anywhere from 10 to 18, depending on who you ask. She was also astonishingly strong for her size and had once even killed a local guard dog with her stick. When villagers finally lured the young woman out of the trees, they were amazed to discover that she spoke only in animalistic whoops and squeaks and preferred to eat raw meat often skinning and biting into the carcass of a fresh kill on the spot. Oh my god, that's attractive. <laughs> In time, the girl learned to speak French and grew more civilized by the French definition of the word, and she was later baptized. Under the name of Marie Angelique Memmi LeBlanc and was sent to live in a convent. Oh, for fuck's sake. Further details about her background would not emerge until 1765 when she told an interviewer that she had escaped to the forest after being kidnapped and brought to Europe as a slave. Many of Mimi's contemporaries believe she was originally an Eskimo of sorts, but recent research suggests that she was likely a Meskawaki Indian born in what is now the wonderful land of Wisconsin. Very interesting story. I had a very unhealthy infatuation with feral women when I was, like, 18. Since passed, because I've done more research on it, but I was uh, quite interested. And I... Didn't say that's attractive because she's underage. I just said that the concept is attractive because I find it attractive, not because of her age. For clarification, I don't find that attractive. Mysterious story of Victor began in 1800, when a boy around 12 years old was found wandering in the woods near Aviron, France. A lot of this happens in France, if you notice that. This wild child was nude and mute, and an abundance of scars seemed to indicate that he had been exposed to the elements since a very fucking young age. He refused to be washed or even to be touched, ignored human contact, and often exploded in violent fucking outbursts. To which, of course, I am sympathetic. Years of isolation had also led him to develop a remarkable form of selective hearing, which I also am sympathetic to. The boy might ignore the sound of a pistol being fired behind his face, but would perk up immediately at the cracking of a walnut, one of his favorite foods. French officials deemed that the child an imbecile, but a, they uh, sent him to a school for the deaf anyway, and a consultant for the school for the deaf named Jean-Marc Gaspard 
It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> Believed that it was possible to teach him language. It's hard. Worked with the boy whom he named Victor and for several years eventually got him to bathe, wear clothes, and even show signs of something that kind of resembled human empathy. Language, however, proved to be beyond his grasp. While Itard taught Victor to understand basic spoken questions and commands, the foundling died at the age of 40, having never spoken a sentence in his fucking life. <sighs> Here's another one. And that is a message from someone that doesn't sponsor me. Please hold. He was just the boy next door. Hi, well, hello there, Danny. I didn't know it was hockey season. Hey, can I borrow a knife? A deadly curse, a deranged killer, a small town in tears. Knife After Dark, rated R for retarded. And much like that last rating, on May 26th, 1828, a teenage boy appeared in Nuremberg, Germany, which you might remember as the trials, the home of the trials after World War II for the war criminals. And he had a seemingly unbelievable story. He identified himself as Kaspar Hauser. The youth said that he had spent the previous 13 years confined to a small room. His only companions were a few wooden toys and a weirdo that appeared each day to feed and water him. He carried with him two cryptic notes which claimed that he had come in his captor's care as a child and had never been allowed to leave the house, but he was now released to pursue a military career. Hauser's macabre tale quickly cap catapulted him to instant fame across all of Europe. Many marveled at his uh, peculiarities. He supposedly possessed a remarkable night vision and often fell into a stupor when presented with new experiences. But others suspected his story might be bullshit. The boy had learned language and writing way too easily. They argued uh, that and that his complexion was not pale enough for somebody who'd spent most of his life in darkness. The situation only grew more bizarre in 1833 when Hauser died from mysteriously, mysterious, possible, possibly self-inflicted stab wounds. Dozens of wild theories have since been proposed about his origins, including that he was actually a royal who was confined as a part of a conspiracy to prevent him from taking the throne. And to this day, however, it is unclear whether Caspar Hauser was a real-life wild child or merely a very, very skilled con man. There's another one, uh, Dina Sanichar. Often known as the Wolf Boy, Dina Sanichar was discovered in 1867 after a band of hunters spied what they initially thought was a wild animal sleeping in the mouth of a cave in the Bolandanshanar district in India. When the men finally smoked the creature out of its hiding place, they were astonished to see that it was actually a boy of six years old. The boy appeared to be living in the wilderness for most of his life and had allegedly survived by scampering on all fours with a pack of wolves. The hunters brought the boy to some mission orphanage in Agra where he was taken in and named Dina Sanichar. Missionaries spent the next several years trying to rehabilitate this wolf boy, but years in the wild had taken their toll on him. He never learned to talk before his death in 1895, and he preferred to chew on bones and dine on raw meat rather than cook food. Some have since suggested that this story may have inspired the feral boy character Mowgli in Rudyard Kipling's book, The Jungle Book, and stories that followed. Huh. So, how about that? Interesting? I think so.
terrible things, Lawrence. You've done terrible things. In case you haven't seen that movie, that quote is from the 2010 remake of the movie The Wolfman with Anthony Hopkins and that ugly fucking Del Toro guy, whatever his name is. Um, I, and at this point in the podcast, I was going to take this time to read werewolf erotica to you, but I figured that uh, I, I, if enough people request it, maybe I will, but I'm not going to fucking do it unsolicited. That's a whole other line of uncomfortable that I'm not potentially willing to cross at this time. I don't rule it out. I rule nothing out, but I'm not feeling it today. So I found instead, honest to God, which websites that tell you how to become a honest to God werewolf, an introduction to werewolfism. Hmm? Before you figure out how to become a werewolf, you should first start making sure you know what you're getting yourself into. Most popular fiction has it confused, and the issue has been confused quite a bit by altering the definition of what a werewolf really is. If you haven't already, it would be wise to read the description of different creatures that we call werewolves on our werewolves' main page, because we know something you don't know. Hmm? Anyways, you know what, for fuck's sake, let's, let's read the description on a different creature that they describe. Oh, for fuck's sake. There's a bit of a disagreement among mythologists as to what really constitutes a werewolf. I'll break it down into three distinct creatures that are all known by this name. The Shapeshifter Wolf. Fans of the Twilight series will recognize this type of werewolf like the character Jacob Black. <sighs> oh my god. The Shapeshifter Wolves are considered werewolves. Can only change from human to wolf form, but pure shapeshifters can transform from human to other animal form of any kind, including but not limited to a wolf. The Wolf Man. Many werewolf stories, including the sightings of the Bray Road Beast, describe a creature that is physically a combination of a wolf and a man. It's a mutant wolf man, typically has mostly a human-shaped body, stands on two legs, and is covered in wild hair and fangs. I'm losing my accent here. But the true werewolf, a true werewolf, according to most legends, is a human that is uncontrollably transforms into a wolf during the full moon. Okay, so as defined by everyone else... I'll give a quick recap, though. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight the landing ground. But many people today think as a werewolf is actually a shapeshifter. Some shapeshifters turn exclusively into wolves from human form. But they're not actually werewolves. We will never surrender. These shapeshifter wolves have been popularly known as werewolves because of the Twilight the book series. If it's a creature you want to become, I'm afraid you're probably shits out of luck. Most shapeshifters are born that way genetically, it's proven. You either have it or you don't, and most of us just don't. A bite from a shapeshifter would just make you horny, it's just a bite. Oh my god. Real werewolfism is a curse. They have no control over it. Human, werewolf, oh my god. <laughs> Real werewolfism is a curse. Those affected have little to no control over the actions when in wolf form and little to no control over their transformation times. Of course, there's the exception to this rule in the rare case of human werewolf syndrome. Linked. The term human werewolf syndrome refers to the condition where a werewolf, while in wolf form, maintains its human consciousness. 
Oh my god. In contrast, werewolf syndrome is a little used term because it's made up, which refers to the condition of being a werewolf. The terms lycanthropy or werewolfism are more common terms to describe the same condition. Now that we've got the terminology, cats yeah, cleared up, totally cleared up. <sighs> oh my god. If you want to still become a werewolf, you can read about how to do so here at another length. But I would advise thinking long and hard about the decision to doing so. Hmm? Yeah, sure, fuck it. How do we do it? <sighs> Be born to parents with werewolf genetics. All right, slick. I'll get right on that. Get bitten by a werewolf. Be cursed. Really? That's fucking it? I suppose there's a bit of a misnomer putting it, putting this in the ways to become a werewolf. Uh, that's growing up a werewolf, being raised by parents that are wolves. Okay, this is too fucking stupid to finish. I can't, I can't do any more of that shit. Jesus fucking Christ. Like, you too can buy a domain name and make up your own fucking medical information about nothing. On that note, that's all I have about fucking werewolves. But, um, just a quick... I want to give a shout-out to a long-time listener that died, uh, Joel. Miss you a lot, man. I appreciate all the support. Not just for the podcast, but before that as well. Miss you. Um... And uh, let's talk about who the most influential city was. I noticed a substantial upsurge in listeners since the fucking Trojan campaign ended. So thank you guys for continuing to be loyal. I know that multi-part series really have not been my friend. And also history multi-part series. I don't do them very well. So I will not be doing them for the foreseeable future. Seems like you'll have substantial one-hitters such as this and such as the uh, Jersey Devil, that sort of thing, because cryptids are voted pretty high and stuff that you guys want to hear about. And I have several requests for other history ones, but fun ones like Genghis Khan and the Old West and that sort of thing, which they're coming. So the Leeds Devil episode. Let us see. I know that I saw some very surprising new cities on the list, which always just makes me fucking horny. Oh. <laughs> First of which, and this is for the last episode, the most influential city with the most listeners in this single episode, number one, Dallas, Texas, for the first time cracking the top spot on the list, closely followed by another high, or another first time high placer, but number two, definitely for the first time, is Salt Lake City, Utah. Thank you. Closely followed by Chicago, Illinois then by Stockholm, then by Los Angeles, then by Orlando, Florida, Las Vegas, Nevada, Arlington, Texas, Alhambra, Arizona, St. Paul, Minnesota, Mountain View, California, Austin, Texas, San Antonio, Texas, San Diego, California. Wow, quite a few in San Diego, California. Thanks, guys. Denver, Colorado, Three Rivers, Michigan, Eastbourne, England, Portland, Oregon, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Atlanta, Georgia, Tampa, Florida, Salem, Oregon, and, oh, for fuck's sake, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Hope I pronounced that right. I appreciate it. Every one of you guys and those that I didn't mention, please keep telling people and maybe your city will show up when this episode airs. When the next episode airs and I'm going through the stats on this episode. Hopefully your city will be there too because I can see on my map which areas light up. It's weird. It's like the, the origin dot is bright and then if it's within the same city, it's... It's a fucking colorful map with lights on it. <laughs> I just like the way it looks. My ego needs to be stroked. It's not going to stroke or suck itself. So uh, thank you for that. And thank you to everybody that's reached out. As always, I know I'm very shitty about getting back to you, but I will get back to you eventually, and I do appreciate you guys taking the time to write me an email, send me a fucking Instagram message, or 
what have you. It's very nice to hear that um, I'm appreciated by somebody. So thank you for that. And uh, I have a Patreon account set up for those of you that know what that means. I don't fully understand how it works yet, but I know that if you go to anthologyofhorror.com, there's a picture of a piggy bank or a crying orphan or fucking, uh, I don't know. There's a picture of something that constitutes like, like maybe a handout with its fingers, like give me, give me, give me some sort of a link to a Patreon. And apparently what a Patreon is, is some sort of contraption in which you can donate money. The way I have it set up now, I think is that you can request specific types of episodes for a nominal fee of your choosing. Um, and I will give you a shout out if you would so desire and do an episode in your favor, which I think could potentially be cool. Um, you know what? Fuck it. I won't rule out fucking werewolf erotica. If you guys want to hear werewolf erotica, you can pay me on Patreon and I will do that, but that's not something I'm going to offer for free, but I'll do it. I don't give a shit. I have no shame. Um, and also if you could go on the iTunes store and rate me five stars and share it amongst your people, that would be much appreciated. Um, it always uh, tickles me to see another five-star rating, and I have quite a few of them, and it's all thanks to you guys and your very, very supportive ways. So thank you for that. Thank you, new listeners. Thank you, repeat listeners. I appreciate every one of you guys. And since uh, it's been an overwhelming amount of very positive feedback, I have no shit to talk, and I appreciate that too. Um. But as always, I have an open-door policy, so if there are any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, um, you want to tell me to go fuck myself, that I'm doing a terrible job, you hope I die, you can do all of that at anthologyofhorror.com, or you can do it at an email. Send it to springheeledjack at anthologyofhorror.com. Once again, that is spring, as in springs, healed, as in what's on your shoe, and jack, as in jacking off. Uh, at little a circle anthology of horror.com as in this podcast.com. And I promise I will get back to you expediently in my own fashion. I work a graveyard shift job. So me not falling asleep while I'm pissing is an accomplishment. Um, but I will get back to you. I promise because your feedback, it is important to me. So on that note, Thank you all for tuning back in. I appreciate each and every one of you. And until next time, stay spooky. This Friday night, it's the incredible sitcom that has captured America's heart and given the whole country a new catchphrase. But I'm 42. Just the five of us. After a mix-up at the adoption agency, the Chesterfields came home with three zany new house guests. Jimmy, tidy your room and go to bed. I'm so sick of this. I keep telling you I've got a rare disease. I look 12, but I'm a 42-year-old investment banker. I want to go out and get laid. Oh, yeah, and I'm Santa Claus. Now tidy your room. Asshole. Sean, our posh suburban home must be a welcome change from that alley you were sleeping in. I really enjoy living here, but there's not enough booze. It's the funniest, most touching half hour on television. Charlotte, what's that smell? I set the couch on fire again. Yeah, I can help you with that. And this week, it's a very special Just the Five of Us, where an attractive blonde lady tries to steal Jimmy away. Now you're talking. Just the Five of Us. 
Friday nights on VBS. Italian loafers without socks? Deconstructed linen suit? Something missing? The plate, the look. With a flesh-toned sleeveless t-shirt at Vice City's one-stop shop for people who dress for success. Wow, you look like everyone else. Complete the look. 